Okay, if I have your attention, you have your seats, and uh, it's a real privilege to have Lex back with us. Uh, Lex has been with us uh, a number of times over the years, so Lex has flown in from Cape Town. Uh, we've been actually away for um, a couple of days this week with other um, advanced churches, the family of churches that we're partnering with, uh, a couple of days in, in Wales. Updates, praying, excited about what God is going to do in the future. Um, and it's fantastic to have Lex with us for those couple of days, bringing a brilliant contribution. And we're looking forward to what Lex is going to bring this morning. So I'll pray and then I'll, I'll hand over to Lex. Lord God, we thank you for your outstanding goodness to us. Uh, and we pray for Lex as he comes and proclaims your word to us. We pray that we'll be ready to hear what you want to say. And we pray that you'll be using Lex to, uh, to speak your goodness and your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we give Lex uh, a rousing round of applause. Man, come on, come on. No, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to be with you again in pool. Yay. And um, just to have enjoyed uh, wandering around and visiting the three record shops that you now have, which is great. I, t I visited two in, in Boscombe. Is that a... Not so good. And then I uh, visited the one record shop. I'm talking about the record shop, not the place. Uh, the one that's in Poole somewhere. Very good. So I've enjoyed that. And also being with Matt Hosier, which has been fun too, and um, Grace and the kids and that. And uh, it's great to be back here. I'm here over for an, uh, an ad this advanced thing that uh, John was talking about and also to be with you this morning. So this is great to be back. I've just had a brief look at the other building uh, yesterday, so I don't really, haven't really had a proper look, look at it, but I'm in looking forward to going over there as well a bit later. So if you see me rushing off, if you're a guest, it's not because I'm like, ah, oh, that was terrible, get me out of here. It's because I'm going off to speak at, a, at another church just now. Um, so I want to talk to you this morning mainly about faith, really, um, about some of the, I'm going to look at a couple of attacks that uh, we are subject to on the subject of faith. And I also want to talk about my own experience in terms of how faith works and then depending on time, uh, look a little bit about how faith can affect our future and our view of our future and our sense of security as we face um, the future. And in this message, I am, of course, speaking specifically about Christian faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ and in the God of the Bible. And I'm going to do that by examining a delicious verse in the New Testament. Do you ever, if you're a, if you're a person who reads the Bible, you will know that there are, there are, you know, so many wonderful verses in there, but there are some verses that are absolutely delicious. And you, you just, you get such enjoyment out of them. And this is one of those. So it's 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. And it says this, I am not ashamed for I, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. This is Paul, an older, more experienced Christian, writing to Timothy, who is a younger, less experienced Christian, and he is encouraging him to have a bold faith, not to be ashamed of his faith in Christ 
not to be ashamed about living for Christ and making decisions because he is specifically a believer in Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's in prison, Paul, when he's writing this. And he's saying, listen, I might be under pressure. I might be, you know, facing some difficult and unusual challenges in my own life, but I'm not ashamed. And I don't want you to be ashamed of Jesus Christ either. So I've got three headings. The first one is this, that faith has always been challenged. If you're someone who believes in Christ or if you're someone who's considering a genuine life-changing or potentially life-changing faith in Christ, that will be challenged. This is no easy road. It's not like, oh, you just believe in God and so it kind of makes it all easy for you. Not so. If you are moving towards faith in Christ, it will be challenged. And it's always been a challenge. Believing God has always been a challenge from the earliest human stories. If you go back to the sto- even the story of Adam and Eve, would they trust, would they believe God rather than go their own way and take matters into their own hands? Or Abraham and Sarah, would they believe this unusual promise from God that they would be able to have a child when everything seemed to suggest that they couldn't have a child? Or Moses, Moses had to believe in God because he was convinced that God wanted to bring deliverance from slavery to his people. And he had a huge struggle to see his people emancipated from slavery. And that was the basis of all of that was really, will I believe God or, or not? Right down to our own time. Faith in God has always been challenged. The decision to believe in God has always been attended by a struggle, by conflict, wrestling, to get through to the answer. And here are two of the most common objections that you'll encounter. Modern objection number one is this. Reason and faith are enemies. They kind of exist in different spheres. If you believe, it's because you're not really applying your rational thinking. There's a kind of other world that you kind of live in that's separate to the whole system of thinking in the real world. And that's your kind of belief, and it's over here in a kind of separate bubble. The only people who are properly applying their minds to the idea of God or spirituality are those who have rejected the idea of God. In other words, if you still believe in all this stuff, it's because you're not thinking properly. You're not applying reason. But that's not fair, is it? And that's not accurate either. Because in actual fact, we are always applying reason to whether we believe something or not. Um, Take Father Christmas or leave him. It's up to you. Um, That you may have believed that, you know, uh, or you may have been a cruel parent like I was and got a little uh, MP3 of sleigh bells and played it in the children's bedroom to convince them that there actually were reindeer coming. or You may have believed something. There comes a point where you think, do I still believe this? Do I believe this? You apply reason. What are the reasons I would have for continuing to believe something? What are the reasons I would have for rejecting that as being untrue? Harmful, but not necessarily true. It may be true. I'm not saying that it's not true. I don't know if there's anyone over here who believes. But... <laughs> Didn't a vicar get into trouble once in England for saying something like that? 
dearie me, what have we got to? Anyway, so, but whatever it is that you're thinking of, you are applying your reason to it. Do I still believe this? Do I believe in God? What are the reasons for believing in God? Do I no longer believe in God? Or what reasons would I have for not believing in God? And so on. So it's a false idea to say that when it comes to matters of faith, we don't apply reason because actually we do. And if we look at our verse this morning, Paul says this, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. So there is both knowledge, I know, and faith whom I have believed. It's not just blind faith. And as a church, we are not just saying to people, just believe, just believe. don't worry, just believe. We don't even need to say that because there are reasons. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And then he says, and I am persuaded. Well, what, what is persuasion? Isn't persuasion a number of reasons presenting themselves to you and then you are persuaded? So it's not just like one reason or two reasons. There's an accumulation of reasons that lead you to a kind of settled conviction. I'm persuaded that this is so. I had a famous curry on Thursday or Wednesday. Uh, there may have been a number of reasons why I should or shouldn't have had certain parts of that, that meal. Um, if I'd added them all together, I would have become persuaded that I should not have eaten that meal, or at least that much of it. So when you're persuaded of something, there's an accumulation of reasons that present themselves to you. And maybe one of those reasons on its own wouldn't be convincing. But when you gather a collection of them, you suddenly realize, taken together, I am persuaded. That's what Paul's talking about. People say, well, can you prove God exists? Well, you can begin to amass reasons why you're convinced that God exists. Taken together, it's persuasive. Taken on their own, well, that could just be coincidence. The prayer was answered here, or you know, the, the, the Bible has changed someone's life radically from being a hard, difficult person into being a, you know, a, 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 a loving person, or whatever it is. Taken together, you can be persuaded. So there's an accumulation of reasons leading to a settled conviction. Now, people come to faith in different ways. Sometimes it's a gradual journey uh, and uh, uh, that kind of persuasive journey where your reason is being added to reason and then you take a step of faith. In the end, you have to take a step of faith and say, all right, Lord, I, I want to believe. I want to believe. For others, it can come very suddenly. Sometimes listening to a sermon or reading a verse of, of Scripture, someone I've got to know, uh, quite well in South Africa, Professor David Block. There's a picture of him somewhere. There he is. He's a personal friend of Stephen Hawking, as he was of Nelson Mandela as well. And um, he's standing behind Nelson Mandela, by the way. He uh, is a South African scientist, one of our greatest scientists, actually, uh, who was not at all convinced of the truth of Christianity. Also, being Jewish, uh, he had more than one reason of not being convinced of the truth of Christianity. And a vicar, an Anglican vicar, I don't even remember what the context was, how they got together. The vicar opened the Bible and read him one verse from the Old Testament. Boom! And it went in. It, the verse was, uh, I've laid in Zion a, uh, a, a testing stone, a rock of offense. And for David, being Jewish, this, this has to be in, so inside Zion, inside 
the Jewish story has been laid, a rock of offense. Christ, and, and he began to investigate, could the Jesus of Christianity be the Christ of the Messiah of Jewish Old Testament Hebrew promises? And he became convinced that indeed it was so. And in the end, he embraced the Christian faith. But it's, the reason I'm using him as an illustration is more that he is a very, very, very bright scientist who's a professor at Witts, um, who doesn't see a distinction between reason and faith as though they are in totally separate categories. He's a very clever person who puts his, who's put his faith in Christ. Um, <coughs> G.K. Chesterton, who was one of the great intellectuals of the 19th and 20th century, said this, the most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. Isn't that great? The most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. Again, he wasn't someone who's just uh, not a thinker. He was a thinker. And the idea that you have to reject the supernatural is just not the case. We are being bombarded with anti-supernaturalism all the time through our television sets and even in how things are taught. But actually, faith and reason are not enemies. They coexist. Um, so the idea that they are enemies, I'm suggesting, is untrue. First objection. Second objection, people of faith, though, are gullible. People of faith are gullible. Have you ever done that on Facebook where it says things like, if you read the word orange very slowly, it begins to sound like the word gullible. And, but before you got to the end, you were saying orange, orange. <laughs> People say, okay, you may be knowledgeable and all of that, but because you believe in God, lots of other nonsense gets smuggled in. So, okay, you might be someone who's intelligent or whatever, but you believe a lot of nonsense because you believe in God. Now, I mean, personally, I have some sympathy with that view because there are people who call themselves Christians uh, who have done things that are a million miles from the Bible. They are in direct contradiction to the teachings of Jesus. So you can look at so-called Christians through history or so-called Christians in your own experience and you can look on and say, you know, well, that's not right. And sometimes when that happens, the broader culture looks on and says, hey, that's not right. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. People are right to question the behavior of the church and of Christians and so on and, and so forth. The point that I'm making is so often that happens because people are not actually doing what Jesus said. They're doing something that is in contradiction to what Jesus said. We need to come back to the Bible as our guide for what we believe and how we behave. Isn't that so? When you come to faith in Christ, you don't throw your common sense out of the window. You don't throw kind of common wisdom out of the window. In fact, through the Bible, we access tried and tested wisdom of former generations. If you're not quite sure how to run this thing called your family, if you're not quite sure how you should be as a husband towards your wife or as a wife towards your husband, you can access generations-old wisdom right there in the Bible. Because I think, you know, we don't know how to live, do we? If every generation had to make it up, we'd be in a right state, wouldn't we? 
And so God's given us this, this book, this resource of wisdom that's been tried and tested over the generations. It's crazy for us to think we could just throw the Bible out. Don't throw the Bible out. Get the Bible down from your bookshelf. Get a readable version of it and start asking God for, for wisdom. So we access Scripture for wisdom. That doesn't mean we don't exercise faith for anything just because common sense still works. But it means that we act appropriately. So we believe, Christians believe, that Jesus healed people. And he told people, I'm just illustrating this now, and he told his followers to minister to those who are sick. And so we do. And we pray. And sometimes God heals people. And it's fantastic. It's wonderful when that happens. I was in uh, Johannesburg in uh, May or June this year. And there was a guy there in agony. He had a... Um, I don't know if it's the different. It was he called it a bulging disc between, and he knew the vertebrae or whatever it is between which this disc was bulging, C5 and C6. Is that all right? I'm doing that from memory. Anyway, um, he'd had it all checked out, and he was scheduled to go in for a cortisone injection. They have to, and then it would be six weeks or something before the pain would subside, and it would kind of go back to normal. Anyway, he was in agony and nearly left the meeting. And then in a short time of prayer, I didn't pray for him, but in a short time of prayer uh, that happened in that meeting, he, he just was dramatically released from all pain responses. There was no pain at all. And I asked him to email me, and he just was over the moon. And this guy is not an extrovert. He's an introvert. So part of his story was hilarious because his wife was helping with the children's work. And he said he was so glad that was the case because she would have been dying of embarrassment because he came to the front and he shared with great enthusiasm his, his story. And it's just incredible. It's wonderful. When that, now, that doesn't happen every time. We wish it did. It doesn't happen every time. But we do believe that God answers prayer. Now, because we believe that God answers prayer, does that mean that we reject medicine? No, of course not. That would be like me saying, okay, I'm really thirsty. I need a drink. And then John gives to me this bottle of water, and I say, no, 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 that's unbelief. I must be supernaturally hydrated <laughs> directly by God. You know, that is a lack of common sense, and that's not what true faith is. So we do believe that God answers prayer, but that doesn't mean that we reject the expertise of qualified medical professionals. These two things can go hand in hand. I, I genuinely believe that. We, 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 we know that science doesn't give us everything that we need to know, but we are not anti-science in, in that respect. Being convinced of the truthfulness of the Bible doesn't lead automatically to nonsense. In fact, many of the early scientific pioneers were Bible-believing Christians. If you did a little bit of research in the history, you'll find that to be true. So we are encouraged by the Bible to apply common sense as well as believing in God in order to be able to discern between what is good and true and what is false and what is evil. Oxford uh, professor, mathematician John Lennox pointed this out. I thought this was a brilliant illustration when he was with us in Cape Town. He said this, that among scientists there are Nobel Prize winners. So these are men and women who are being recognized as being at the very top of their game, um, who there are Nobel Prize winners who believe in God in the sciences, and there are Nobel Prize winners who don't believe in God, who've also been awarded that prize. In other words, 
Belief in God didn't affect their science either way. Belief in God didn't make them bad scientists, lazy, uninterested in exploring, developing, and pressing through for, for, for answers naturally. Not at all. The idea that people who believe in God must be intellectually lazy or unintelligent is just false. So, whoever you are, whatever your background, or isn't it time you considered this, this book, the Bible? Melvin Bragg calls it the book of books. Isn't it time you took it down and opened it and began to read for yourself and find out, what is, is there something here for me that could change my life? Maybe you've begun to do that. Isn't it time that you began to take a step forward towards Christ and, and begin to pray even now, even today, even during this message or at the end of this message, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I, I've got to know if this is true. Or if this is just kind of some strange eccentricity that some people believe. Is, could this be true for me? So faith has always been challenged. Faith has always been challenged. Secondly, and this is probably going to be my final point, faith works. Faith works. Now that is an assertion. I, I understand that. It's just a claim. I'm just saying that. So I want to illustrate it uh, personally. Because... There is a Jewish lady in America to whom I think I owe my life. Um, that does sound a little unusual, but I'll tell you the story. So we first met, and I barely remember it, when I was doing um, some temporary clerical work for my dad. So our family, my father, had an antiques shipping um, and uh, freight forwarding company. And um, which he had set up. He'd worked for a company called Pitt and Scott in London for 20 odd years, and then he began his own company on the South Coast. And this lady was on a buying trip, Lani Riches, this year's, and her husband uh, were on a buying trip from the USA, and they came across to the UK. We were in England at the time. And uh, when she came into the office, she was introduced to me. I was sitting there just doing this temping work. And uh, she says something happened to her when she met me. Uh, this did sometimes happen. It was usually a negative thing. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I was probably, I'm guessing, 19 or so at the time. And, I'm, you know, I was uh, going through what a lot of 19-year-olds uh, would go through. I'm deeply skeptical of organized religion. Never, we were never a church-going family at all. Um, so I had, in fact, never been to church uh, at that time. I was uh, anti-Christian specifically, um, and you know I was a bit of a political animal, so when I was at college, I was president of the Students' Union and um, had successfully led a walkout of the college, and we joined with other um, um, institutions and did a large march through the city. Um, so that was my kind of person. I was not, a, uh, not kind of led by the crowd or anything like that. Deeply skeptical of religion. Um, and with a kind of, of artiness, literature, music, a little bit of kind of punky, a little bit hippie, a little bit anti-authority, all of that very political, all of that all mixed together. Like, you remember the Peanuts? cartoons there was that one guy who had this mess going on 
Um, so kind of philosophically, that was me. Anyway, I, I don't remember. She came into the office. She took one look at me, and she said, and this I heard this years later, God put a burden on my heart for you. Now, she was a believer in Jesus, and none of us knew it at the time. My parents didn't know that. She never said anything. Um, but later on, she told me that from that moment, so I probably only went, oh, hello. Um, from that moment, she prayed for me every day. That is so bizarre. Uh, every day, believing that somehow God would get through to me, which, of course, I, you know, I'm glad she didn't say anything, because I was a fully convinced atheist by that time. And I had all these views. Uh, I was earning a little bit of money you know, during the summer break or whatever. I'd read extensively by then, uh, and I was very hostile to Christianity. Now, I realized that not everyone is as hostile to the Christian faith as I was. So it may be that you're very open about the church doing good things and, you know, people are, you know, Christians are nice people. Uh, I, I, I didn't have any of that. But that can be just as dangerous, actually, as someone who's full-on hostile like I was because it can be almost a little more difficult to get for you to actually say, I need this. You can look at someone who's a mile away from any kind of religious affiliation and say, yeah, they need it. But actually, you can be even positive, but on the outside. And don't be lured into thinking that actually that's a safe place to be. You still need to consider the claims of Christ in your own life. So anyway, this American Pentecostal Jewish Christian lady who loved antiques prayed and she prayed every single day, and I knew nothing about it. She prayed, and she believed. She was exercising faith for me when I knew it was all nonsense and that there wasn't a God. And absolutely against the run of play. Well, obviously, you know the story in, in a sense, because here I am talking to you about it 30 years later. But anyway, um, massive changes began to happen in my thinking first, and then in my life. So just to cut a long story short, I enjoyed reading, as I mean, you can probably tell, but um, I was really particularly enjoying some of the modern European novels, and particularly German novels, I don't know why, but Hermann Hesse particularly I loved, and uh, I'd read Nietzsche as well, of course, but, but Hermann Hesse I loved. And so I, I, was, I was traveling, and I was thinking, I want to get into some more of this German literature. And I found, as luck would have it, a massive anthology of German literature. And so I began plowing through it. And very early on, there was a huge chunk, which was by Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr. of the Civil Rights Movement. Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century monk who challenged the establishment of his day ferociously. So I'm reading through this stuff, and I'm thinking, nice one, Martin, because he's pointing his finger at the corruption in the church of his day, and he's saying, you're exploiting the poor, and you are scaring people with stories of hell in order to get money out of them. It's outrageous. And I thought, I like it. I like him. This is my kind of guy. 
you know, actually single-handedly as well, which also kind of I appreciated, you hypocrites, self-enriching hypocrites. So he, he appeared to me to be a kind of social reformer. Obviously, there was some religious stuff in there as well, and that was a little bit of a distraction. But the main thing, you know, and that's how I saw it. And I, I just thought, wow, man, who would have thought? Obviously, this is a Christian figure, a huge Christian figure, and he's concerned about social justice, concerned about the poor, he's concerned about corruption in high places and hypocrisy. So that was a, like a real connection for me. And I don't think I read anything else. That was what I needed that book for, and that was that. And then I stayed for about a month in a northerly hill station in India, the foothills of the Himalayas. And um, it's a beautiful uh, part of the world, of course. Uh, there was no television or anything modern, but they did have a cassette uh, recorder. Anyone can remember cassette recorders? And so <laughs> that was about the end. That was the form of entertainment. There's no, there's no Instagram, WhatsApp. There were, the internet hadn't even been invented. It was, there was just a cassette player with three cassettes. The White Album by the Beatles, which is two cassettes because it's a double album, and then uh, Slow Train Coming by Bob Dylan. Yeah, which is all full of exhortations to believe in Jesus, bizarrely. So, for, so I used to love, who didn't love Bob Dylan? So, you know, and the Beatles. So it was kind of beautiful surrounding and great music. And because there were only three cassettes and we were there for a month, I practically learned every single word in the Bob Dylan album, which were all, it was all exhortations to believe in Jesus. I'd recommend that album to you if you haven't heard it. It's a fantastic album. Anyway. So I didn't kind of become a Christian then and there. I returned to England. I moved back in with my parents temporarily. And uh, yeah, I can't tell the whole story, but bizarrely, a non-Christian friend of mine came to see me bringing with him this story that uh, Jesus is the truth and he's been born again and all of that. And I, I thought, oh man. That's what happens to weak-minded people. Uh, I actually genuinely felt you've got compassion on the on a, a, a bit of wood over there. Um, I felt I felt sorry for him. What has gone on here? You've had a breakdown. And I thought I actually, this is true. I thought I'm, I'll help him, but I was also challenged that I knew I myself had never really fought with Christianity properly. You know, I'd been over there, I'd been over here, we'd had a couple of little tussles, and now suddenly Martin Luther's like, it's not as bad as I thought, and all that. So he gave me the Gospel of John, and I was just absolutely bowled over by what I read. Incredible. Who is this Jesus? I never really, I'd argued with Christians before, but this was kind of better, because it was just me and a book. So you can argue, but the book just restates the same <laughs> thing back to you again. So you have to really consider it. So, so I, I just read and read and read and read, and I just was blown away. This was a different version of Christianity than I'd imagined in my own mind. And I began to desire to follow Jesus. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. But I just, I, there was a sense of, I, I, oh dear, this is like... I can't go this direction, surely. This is a very, very bad move in so many different ways. 
For me, I, I kind of think of it as like a, a garden. You know, you've got like a little patch and nothing grows there because there is nothing there. And then suddenly, out of nothing, out of nowhere, the Bible says faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Out of nothing, out of nowhere, out of, out of no, no thing, suddenly green, the green shoots of faith began to appear from nothing. It was just the seed that was not suddenly was and grew in me, and I had this desire to follow Christ. My thinking was changed first, but... And then I actually did come to the point of saying, is this really you, Lord? And then actually putting my trust in Christ, saying, Lord, I, I, I want to follow. And I didn't understand everything. Um, <coughs> I didn't have any jargon either. So I was just saying, I too will be a disciple, um, like in the Gospel of John. But then underneath, it, it became obvious that actually it's not just me wanting to believe something. The big foundations were being shifted. It was, this is going to be something massive in my life. This is, this, is, this is bigger than just me saying, oh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll try, you know, low-fat milk now, from now on, or I'm giving up sugar, or, you know, you make these peripheral or surface decisions through life. I'm going on a diet. That's a kind of surface. I know it's a bit tough, but anyway, I, 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 I'm, it's a surface decision that I'll need to commit to. This was under the surface. This was my whole way of thinking. My whole decision, my lifestyle choices, this is everything. This is, I, if this is true, I'm not, I'm not going to mess about. This is, if this is true, I'm going to be a real follower of Christ. I'm going to follow Him my whole life, my being, my thinking, my future, my ambition, my dreams, everything. I wanted to be a real disciple of, of, of Christ. So, of course, you know, I'm with my parents, and this is like, Great news for them. So my dad, they didn't like it at all. My dad said, I'll give it three weeks. So, which is fair enough. Uh, I'm now in my 20s. I, I said to uh, my dad, uh, after three weeks, I said, it's been three weeks. You know, it's still fantastic. He said, oh, man. For you, he didn't. That would, he, if he was a South African, he would have said that. But he said, uh, it was politics, and now it's religion. It's like, you know, you're just a difficult person <laughs> who likes to argue about the two big issues that you shouldn't. And I remember talking to my mom and trying to explain to her, look, no, you know, obviously they were concerned. Is this some kind of weird thing you've got into? And I'm saying, no, this is historic Christianity. This is orthodox Christianity. I'm trying to explain to her. And at the end of the conversation, she didn't get it at all. And I probably wasn't explaining it very well. I just said to her, look, the bottom line is, mom, you need to be saved. And she said, yeah, from you. <laughs> <laughs> a year or two after my conversion, Lani and her husband turn up again for a, another buying trip. And uh, once again, my parents were organizing the itinerary for them and taking them to the various different antique stores. And uh, my mother was driving Lani to an antiques dealer in Sussex. And it was the first time they were alone. And so, now remember, she's been praying every day. She knows nothing about this. She said, how, how is your son? How's he doing? And my mum shook her head in a kind of disappointed way. And she said, oh, you'll never believe it. And Lani's heart immediately sank, she told me afterwards. Oh, is he on drugs? Is he in trouble with the police? Is he in prison? Is he dead? Is he dead? What happened? 
And my mom said, oh, he's become one of those born-again Christians. <laughs> and Lani, my mom told me, Lani punched her fist in the air and screamed at the top of her voice, Hallelujah! And my frightened the life out of my mum, who nearly crashed the car. But a woman that I didn't even know. I didn't even know this woman. I know her now. When, when I didn't believe, when I wouldn't believe, when I couldn't believe, believed for me. Even though I was an impossible case. There were just no kind of connecting points for me that I could draw on or that could be drawn on. She believed for me when I, I, I couldn't believe, when I didn't believe. Can I just say to you, don't give up. Don't give up on anyone who's far off from Christ. Don't give up on your parents. Don't give up on your siblings. Don't give up on your children. Even if they're in another country, a million miles away from you and a million miles away from God, don't give up. Don't give up on someone in your workplace that you think that's just never going to happen. Honestly, I'm not exaggerating. If you'd met me, there's just no way. It would, it would never have, it's just not, I wasn't a candidate for Christianity or really for any kind of religion, actually. Don't give up. Faith works. Put your faith in Christ. And I'm, I'm not intimidated now. You know, we sometimes get intimidated by atheists and particularly clever atheists. I'm not intimidated by atheists at all. They're my people group. That's where I, I came from. I might not be as clever. I may not have all the answers yet. I get them if I need them. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. And that means his past work for Christ and his future as well. And I want to encourage you, don't be ashamed. Amen? All right, let's pray. Should we stand together? Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for this reminder today that we need not be ashamed, but we can be persuaded. And maybe you're here today and you're in that position. And you're saying, actually, I want to be persuaded, I want to believe. I want to know if this is the case. And maybe you're open even now to saying, God, would you show me? Would you show me? And I want to, I want to pray for you. Just standing where you are, I want to pray for you. That you might, that a trigger might be released in you to help you to believe and to help you to follow Christ. And if that's, if that's you today, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just raising your hand while everyone's eyes are 
closed. If you would just raise your hand where you are, I want to pray for you. Is that you today? You're saying, I want to believe. Wonderful. Can you just keep it up high for me? Wonderful. There's a couple of hands there. Anyone else? That's beautiful. You can put your hands down. Father, I want to pray for these ones who are saying, I want to believe today. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help them right now come through to you. Why don't you just in your heart repeat with me this prayer? Lord Jesus, just in your own heart, Lord Jesus, I need you now. Please come into my life and help me follow you. I want to know you and I want to know your love. I thank you that you died on the cross for me. I believe you're alive again. Come in and transform my life from the inside out. And I pray for the rest of us too. Lord, would you help us to not stay silent or to be silent, but to share the good news that Christ is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And by sharing it, we might bring hope where there is no hope and light where there's darkness and a future where there may be fear for the future. And I pray, God, for any who are fearful of the coming months and years, I pray, Lord God, for your children that you would steady their hearts to know that actually you're secure. Paul said, I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day. And so, Lord, we place our feeling of security into your hands. We entrust it to you. If we were just trusting in pounds and pennies, in family and friends, we might have reason to be anxious. We ask that you would help us entrust our life and the transition into the, the great day that's coming into your hands. We're not ashamed. We know who we believe and we're persuaded that you, Lord, will keep what we've entrusted to you, our very hearts and lives, until that day. Amen. Amen. God bless.